Hello, everybody, and welcome to a brand new episode, well, our first episode of Forgotten People. I'm your host, Steve Pisa. I'm here today with Brooke Barden. We're going to be talking a little bit about mental health in Hollywood, mental health in Los Angeles. You know, what is the deal with a lot of the homeless in Los Angeles? Because a lot of people just don't have answers. We want to ask people, professionals, doctors, lawyers, police officers, people who work in the social community, what exactly is happening to our city? Um, not that it's a bad thing. It's just a thing that we want to solve, that we want to see for ourselves, and we want to know. So we want to ask professionals. If you have any questions, please call in 515-602-9609. We want to hear from you. What has been your issue that's been going on for a long time? I can tell you from myself, from personal experience, I've had a bunch of issues for the past couple of years. We've talked about it on Cinema Files Radio. We talked about it for the past couple of months while I've had my new show. I've had a couple of issues with mental health, and, and I really want to get down to the, to the bottom of it. Discuss mental health, what happened to me. What happens to other people, how they recover from it, and where do they go from there? Very important questions. But a lot of times we ask armchair psychiatrists questions, and they have their own malarkey on how they want to give you figurative answers and what have you. And sometimes it sounds like a, a Chinese fortune book. Sometimes it sounds like Nietzsche is trying to tell you how to live a better life. But a lot of times it's, what you want to hear is compassion. You want to hear people tell you, you know, things are going to be okay. And then sometimes you just want answers. What is going on? Yeah, thank you for joining us today. You know, let's let's go ahead and get right down to the group of it. Let's bring in uh, Brooke right now. Brooke. Good morning. <laughs> hey, Brooke, how are you doing? I'm doing okay today. Thanks for having me on. Brooke, please tell us, what is your uh, speciality? What, what is the thing that you focus on in the medical field? I'm a licensed clinical social worker, and I've always worked with um, individuals who have severe and persistent mental illness. Um, usually they are also coping with things like chronic homelessness or um, dual diagnosis with substance use issues um, and um, poverty. Wow. That, that's, a, that's a whole, you know apple pie worth of, worth of stuff. Uh, what, do you, what, is, what do you see as the most concerning issue right now when it comes to mental health? I, you know, I tend to agree with you on the homelessness issue. Mm-hmm. I think um, homelessness is just um, uh, rampant in the city um, and it's growing and it's just getting, it's just been getting worse and um, we don't have enough services mm-hmm. for individuals experiencing homelessness. Um, we don't. I, I currently work with a gentleman uh, who had been in subsidized housing in Santa Monica, um, for instance, and he really? um, was told that the land was going to be um, taken back, and they were building condos, and they had to find. They were given, you know, so much time to move and find a place, but um, due to his own mental health issues. He wasn't able to organize himself well enough to find a place, and he just became homeless for the next several years. And um, that, had, that almost sounds like somebody breaking their leg and having to go through uh, homelessness just because they have to pay for their medical bills. Yeah, yeah. Do you find that a lot? Do you do you find that episode to be a lot that people stummer or they they just slip just a little bit and they slide all the way down? Um. 
I'm sure that there's a lot of people out there in LA that that's happened to. Um, I tend to work more with severe cases mm-hmm. or not, they're not cases, they're people, I'm sorry. Um, but I tend to work more with people who have more severe illnesses, mm-hmm. who have big slips. Right. Um, but Well, that's one of the reasons why we're, we're talking about forgotten people, because some of the people that you take care of are people that we don't even see on a day-to-day basis. Some of the people that you take care of are severe mental cases that a lot of us, you know, we think when we see somebody out there that's homeless or we see somebody who has critical mental health issues, we think that's the person that you're taking care of. But I understand that it's actually a lot worse in the jails, in these services. Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, and, and the individuals who are um, out there on the streets, uh, you know, they, they, they have a choice in, their, in if they want treatment. And so sometimes the issue becomes like you can refer them to services, but if they aren't able to engage well with the providers coming out to visit them to try to get them signed up with services, then they never get linked to, to services anyway. So like they, oh. they'll, the um, mental health programs will spend, um, you know, a considerable amount of time trying to outreach them where they're at. So whether that's, you know, on the side of the riverbed or mm-hmm. on Skid Row or wherever. Um, but if they don't engage with that person, eventually the, the referral gets um, closed and, and they go on without any services. Mm-hmm. Um, the individuals that I, currently I'm working with are people who are more, um, uh, they've, you know, maybe been, had some sort of small criminal interaction with the police, excuse me, with the police and been arrested um, and and referred to us through criminal justice. Well, that's another question that I have for you, which is with the criminal justice system, the way it is, I see a lot of people picking up felonies and misdemeanors based on mental illness and then once they're in the hospital or once they're in the jail it just gets progressively worse and now since they're in the system now they're almost lost within a system absolutely yeah um we definitely see that a lot with the individuals that we work with they um you know it could be something simple where you or I would get pulled over and we'd be let go, but they have severe mental illness. They're chronically homeless. And the police that day, it's a very subjective, whether they decide to, um, you know, press criminal charges or, or kind of let them go with a warning or take them to the hospital, you know, because if somebody is experiencing psychosis and they're, um, you know, agitated towards the police. Mm. Uh, one police officer could realize, hey, this person has schizophrenia and we need to get them help right. at the hospital. Or they could arrest them and charge them with resisting uh, resisting arrest or, um, you know. Uh, Do you feel like a lot of times the police department has like a stigma against mental illness? Because a lot of times what I hear a lot of police officers say, and they work extremely hard at their job, is this guy is not mentally ill. He's just a jerk. So I hear that I hear that sometimes. You you think that's a stigma sometimes that, that kicks in? Um, I'm sure I'm sure that that happens. Um, you know, I, the police officers that I've had most contact with have been more specialized in treating mental mm-hmm. health. Um, so when I worked in an outpatient um, FSP program, mm. uh, we would work closely with the PERT team or the MET team um, who have specialized training. The MET team that works in in Metro, right? Meaning. Um, what is that? Is it mental health emergency 
something or other. Um, I'm sorry, I don't remember the exact acronym. Okay. The, the PERT team is the Psychiatric Emergency Response mm -hmm. Team. So it's similar. It's just dependent on where you're at, I think. Sure. Um, and they really do a good job and have good relationships with the local homeless population and people with mental illness. But the regular cops who maybe have less specialized training in that, I, I think that, yeah, I think they have very stressful jobs. They get stuck um, coming out to situations where you've got somebody in a psychiatric episode um, and they maybe don't have the training to, to know that that's what that is going on versus. Right. Right. Well, Brooke, let's talk, talk a little bit about yourself. So you, you work in social work. How long have you been your, your job now or in your profession now? I started working with severe and persistent mental illness in 2000. Mm -hmm. So it's been about 19 years. Wow. I finished my master's in 2004. Hmm. Um, so I guess post-master's is about 15 years now. Wow. <laughs> went by really fast. Things go by really way faster than we think it does. Yeah. You know, one of the reasons why I took psychiatry and psychology in college was because I had mental issues growing up. And I know that's why a lot of people take a lot of these careers because they themselves have had issues and they want mm -hmm. to solve them or they want to figure out what is going on with them. I, I don't want to get too exactly for, sure. I don't want to offend anybody, but uh, have you had these personal issues yourself? And is this one of the reasons why you entered the field that you're in? Sure. I, you know, I think, I think most people have, they have mm. some experience with mental illness in their family or personally or with their friends. Uh, I had it in a couple different areas. So I have always had uh, fairly severe social anxiety disorder. Mm. Um, and dealt with bouts of depression. But what really interested me growing up was my cousin. Um, he was my age, and around 12, he started having, um, you know, auditory hallucinations, visual hallucinations, and he was very paranoid. Um, unfortunately, you know, he felt like the family was trying to poison him. Mm. Um, he wouldn't eat anything unless it was in packaged uh, packaged containers so that he know he would know that no one was poisoning him. Um, wow. And so in, in dealing with that, um, even just from afar, because we lived in California and he lived in Michigan, I, right. it just always fascinated me how the brain could kind of play those tricks on you. And Did it make you afraid? Oh, no. No, I, I was fascinated by it. Um, Hopefully none of my family listens. So I, um, you know, so other people in the family were afraid of it. His, right. his older brother, he, uh, later on, he would draw these pictures that were very scary, um, mm. probably based on his, you know, hallucinations or delusions. And his older brother, you know, felt like he was evil and didn't want him around his child. So they, you know, it, it for many years, just due to lack of education on mental illness, it severed ties between them. I see that happens a lot with mental illness, that it, mm -hmm. it really does separate families in a way that uh, not even alcohol <laughs> does to families. Yeah. I've seen alcoholics just slip right back into families, but mental illness is, doesn't seem like one of those things that people can easily just slip back into their family. There seems to be a gigantic uh, push away from issues like that. Of course, coming out of fear and not understanding. I mean, I, I almost don't blame them. I mean, at this point now, you know, he's, his brother um, is very, uh, he's actually in the field. He's a principal at a school and his wife is a social worker who helps, who works in mental health. So, right. 
um, at this point, it's been healed. And, oh, he understands but, now. Yeah, that's the funny thing about these things is, is what I find is that when people don't understand what's going on or they're confused or just, I'll just say plain calloused about a situation because they haven't done their own study. Listen, if you were in love with a girl and she was a Buddhist, how many, how many books would you read on Buddhism? Yeah. Seriously. Yeah. Right. Now your brother's mentally ill. How many books did you read about mental illness? Zero. Yeah. So really where, where is your fascination? So that's where I find it kind of difficult for a lot of people when they, when they don't quite understand, but I find that they will understand in the future mm-hmm. that something will teach them in the future. Have you found that out to be true in, in the psych, in the psych world that people who don't quite understand mm-hmm. will, will someday understand? Doesn't seem like politicians do. I mean, I think the more exposure somebody has to an issue, just any issue, and the more education they have it, the the more likely they are to understand. So, what, what is the what is the reason why people are so afraid about mental health? And also in Hollywood today, it it is very, it's very open now that people are talking mm-hmm. about mental, which, which is why is we're doing which is why yeah. we're doing the radio show. Which is great. A lot of people are talking about mental illness. A lot of people are talking about anxiety and stress and depression. Why why do you think it's blossomed? In the maybe the past, you know, eighteen months, you know, twenty-four months. Um, I think, you know, I think that there's been a lot of social media. Uh, we get information, personal information. We're much more open as a society to talk about things and um, put our information out there. It's just right. routine, you know. And with, there's been a lot of, um, you know, with with various suicides, Robin Williams. Yes. And, I think there's uh, Anthony Bordeaux, Bourdain, sorry. Um, There's been a lot of people um, who've come out and and shared that. And I think by telling people's recovery stories, individuals' recovery stories, um, you start to see that there is hope and that people do recover. And then it's not so much of a diagnosis of like doom, like you're doomed to have schizophrenia and sit on the couch smoking all day, Um, what they call the Coke and smoke syndrome. Mm. Um, you know, now it's it's like people realize you can recover and you can still have meaningful, very productive lives, whether you have a diagnosis or not. I guess that's the question I would ask you next is, is can you recover and, and how is your life after that? Yeah, I mean, um, one of the things that, that led me into my graduate studies <clears throat> um, was in undergrad. I was exposed to... Um, I'm not sure if you're familiar with Patricia Deegan and the National Empowerment Center. Mm -hmm. So Patricia had given some talks um, about her own experience and, you know, she had had, she has schizophrenia. She um, hears voices and um, had been hospitalized many times and, um, you know, good medication and does what she calls her own personal medicine. Um, and she recovered, um, went back to school, went on to get a PhD. She's now, um, you know, the director of her own um, nonprofit. And, and wow, yeah, she's pretty amazing. That's quite an accomplishment. And there was people out there like that, and and that's actually what like really inspired me to kind of take my path. Um, Daniel Fisher is a, a psychiatrist also. He, mm. he has schizophrenia and he hears voices. That's and, incredible. So they were able to be functioning schizophrenics. Yeah. Because you can't cure schizophrenia. No, but you can manage. It's just like mm. anything else, like like anybody's mental health. Like we experience stress. We do things on our day, in our daily lives to manage that stress so that it doesn't interfere 
with our lives as much as we can, just just like anything else. You know, they they did that with with their own illness. Right. Mm-hmm. That's fascinating. And went on to you know go back to school and was very intelligent individual. Sure. I mean, there's no way they can accomplish all those things without being intelligent. Yeah. But going back to you, Brooke, you know, you're you're telling me about your family back in Michigan. Mm-hmm. So so what what else about mental health can you tell me about that's that drove you to go towards this field as well? Honestly, I, I saw the movie Sybil when I was young. <laughs> and it was just so fascinating to see yeah. how the brain works. Right. Um and I think at one point in time, my older sister was interested in schizophrenia because of my cousin also. Hmm. And then she changed gears and went into um, molecular biology. So I think then it like opened it up. Well, that was really interesting. That's um, fascinating that you two took it as a, this is interesting. I want to do more study on this. And somebody else took it in a, a more progressive approach, which is I'm afraid of this yeah. and I want to run away from it. I mean, I, I think also because I had such high levels of my own anxiety, hmm. um, that I always like that that could have been me. Like clearly it's in the Oh really? Yeah. I think I was a little afraid of that. And it definitely kept me personally from using hallucinogens and other drugs in my developing. Yes. um, Because my, my cousin had quite the experience. Yes. LSD very young. Me as well. That's the reason why I did not do certain drugs as well. Uh, So I was fearful. Like I don't want to end up, with this major you don't chronic know. mental illness. Yeah, you so. take ayahuasca. I don't know what's going to happen to my brain. Yeah. You know, I take mescaline or I take LSD. I mean, that you're, you're you're basically taking the, the Petri dish, which is your brain, and just forcing chemicals into it. It's like, no, thank you. Yeah, well, and, and there's these symptoms that people have that they um, try desperately to get rid of and manage, yeah. and then you're paying to do a drug that mimics those symptoms. Right. So... I think I, um, so you were fascinated from a young age. Yeah. Yeah. And then, um, the more I would read about it and learn about it, the more interesting it got. Um, well, that's incredible. And then as you meet the individuals working in an, I, uh, an is an Institute for mental disease. It's, um, like a mental health center. It's, um, so there's, so in the mental health system, there's like the state hospital, which would be the highest level of care. Okay. And then down from that would be like these IMDs and mental health centers that are locked subacute facilities where somebody's um, they've lost their rights to make decisions on their own mental health treatment, and they are um, kind of forced treatment in uh, a locked setting. Mm-hmm. So I worked at one of those through college, um, and you'd meet individuals with schizophrenia and schizoaffective disorder and and bipolar disorder. Um, well, with your own issues, uh, you know, as you're going through college, how did mm-hmm. how did it help or not help with your own issues in your own life? Oh, it was, it was really helpful to learn about it because it helped me manage it, but also advocate. Like the more I learned, the more I could go back to my primary doctor and say, all right, you've prescribed me this, but I don't want to see you. I want to see a psychiatrist. And do you know what I'm saying? Like, I think a lot of times primary care doctors try to manage things and they think that they have some experience and I'll just give you this, this pill and we'll check in on you in six months. Um, But they're not an expert and a psychiatrist really knows the ins and outs, excuse me, of all the medications, the side effects and what's going, um, what targets 
more specific symptoms within you as an individual and your diagnosis. Whereas, you know, the PCP just, it's like, well, this works for one guy. Let me throw some Prozac at you. Um, So for me, I I had a co-occurring sleeping disorder at the time. um, And I would go on the antidepressant and I would complain about I'm sleeping all day, every day, having sleep attacks. Mm. And she'd be like, well, you know, we'll just have to take you off the antidepressants then. And I'd go back and I'd say, I need. And she would, um, well, what do you want me to do? You're complaining about being tired. And and finally I had to <laughs> be like, look, I, I don't want to see you. I want to see a psychiatrist else, yeah. and I want a sleep specialist. Really when, when I advocated, um, wow. for the specialists that I got good care. And was she, able to so get you fought for your own mental health. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh-huh. And I think that that's something that people with chronic and severe mental illness, you know, that's part of what they struggle with. Those. Oh, I understand. So since you can advocate for yourself, you went out and advocated for other people because they couldn't advocate for themselves. Yeah. I mean, I think people with schizophrenia have a hard time communicating with right. and advocating for themselves. And, yeah. um, and even, you know, they might've had really bad experiences their first few times dealing with the mental health system right so they don't like going to the doctors right um they may you know have have trouble with that and so i think it helps if you have somebody that they trust and um, has a relationship with them that can kind of help them advocate at the doctors whether it's the primary doctor or even their psychiatrist the first few times right i, I i'll be honest i, I i'm completely naive to this because i didn't even know there was an advocacy you know, group or, or uh, motivation uh, on psychiatrist's part or, or therapist's part or, or anybody's part to want to help people. So, when, so you advocate for people even now. I work with a really great psychiatrist now, yeah. so I don't have to as much. Right. Um, but um, yes, I definitely advocate for them now in dealing with um, their primary health for sure. Okay. Um, we have people constantly going to the doctor, constantly being um, their symptoms being minimized for real health issues. How so? Um, okay. You know what? Let's get to this right after our commercial break. We're going to take a little commercial break. We're going to go back here with Brooke. Uh, <laughs> thanks for listening, everybody.
I don't know why everybody's laughing at me. I love that song. All right, so we were talking about the hospital. You were talking about you were you were gonna discuss one one of the doctors back at the hospital and what's going on. Oh, I I was the just the medical okay. system. So it's it's so currently with us advocating for um the people we work with and their health issues, mm-hmm. what happens is, is you go to the doctor, you're bringing up these complaints and we always send somebody, we send a case manager, we re- relay the fact that, you know, we want to make sure our nurse is aware of all the health issues so that she can um, educate the member and, and sh- make sure that they're following their treatment plans or they are making educated decisions about following them or not. So, you know, we just have this individual right now who we've been working with him for almost a year. We've been, he's been at the primary care doctor at least once a month. Uh, he's been hospitalized several times due to chest pain and different issues. Um, and we're in the process of referring him on. Well, we have ne- every visit, we get the visit summary. There's never diagnoses listed on this visit summary. So we specially requested records just to make sure that we gave a detailed outline of his health for the skilled nursing facility um, when he gets there. And it came back with like, I don't know, like 17 different health diagnoses, um, like chronic kidney disease, lung disease, emphysema, um, all, you name it, this guy has it. And they've never talked with the case manager or the member about the fact that he has these diagnoses mm. or made any treatment recommendations that we're aware of. Right. So it's constantly like battling. It's like, I think that they have this view of somebody with a mental illness as not being able to manage these things. Right. And either they're just, they don't care enough to take the time to educate them and work with the person on understanding, Hey, you have, kidney disease or you have lung disease sure. um, or they tend to blame things on the psych meds. So you go in, we have other people who go into the doctor. We think they have sleep apnea. They're telling us it's the sleep meds. We're asking and begging, could you please rule out sleep apnea? This person snores. They're falling asleep all day long. Well, we're pretty sure it's the psych meds. And, and I, you know, you go back and you say, well, the psychiatrist has been working on the psych meds. We follow very closely. We need you to rule this out so we can, so the psychiatrist can then, if, if it really is the psych meds, right. you know, then we can rule out the sleep apnea um, and, and move on with changing the psych meds. But first, like, can you please do your job and rule out the sleep apnea? And for me, that's really frustrating. So you need to, ba- you need to battle them as well. Absolutely. Absolutely. And, um, you know, we have a, a gentleman, for instance, who, um, you know, he has a sensation, a tactile hallucination of bugs crawling on him. Mm-hmm. He's never been tested for anything. It's always been assumed it was a psych issue. It very well, it, it's very likely it is a psych issue. Right. But, you know, we'd like the doctors to do their due diligence and rule everything out. He He's, um, you know, we went in asking um, the case manager went in and requested they refer him to a neurologist um, just to make sure there's nothing else going on. And she ends up, you know, needing to talk to the psychiatrist or myself before she does the referral. And when I get her on the phone, her her response is, 
um, well, this is probably a psych issue. And, and I'm agreeing with her and I'm saying, yes, we, you know, we understand that, but what happens if it's not, and we miss something, can you, can you, you know, can you please um, treat this man? Right. And he's asking you, you know, so. And She's, so you're a level or off. So you're a governor sometimes to the doctor, whereas some, sometimes you, you govern over like where they should proceed. I view it more as just like an advocate or somebody who goes mm. to the doctor and and supports them. Right. I think sometimes in those appointments they get that nervous. Makes sense. They forget what they're gonna say. They don't remember why they're there. Sometimes they're manic and they're overspeaking themselves. Yeah, and then they get because they're because they're manic, they're not being taken seriously. Right. Um, right. Or, do, now, do you find that to be? A, so I, I found that to be a problem as well when mm-hmm. I went when I went for myself for mental health. Mm-hmm. I, I've been. To psychiatrist since I was a little boy in the okay. first grade, oh, wow. and I've had some fantastic psychiatrists mm-hmm. throughout my entire life. But once in a while, you will get the occasional. I don't think he really has psychological or psychi- psychological issue. I think he's really just a jerk. The psychiatrist? Yes. Say that? Wow. Yeah, I've had people say that to me. Oh, I, wow. I've had AA people say to me, "You're not an alcoholic. You're just a jerk." Wow. And it's like, okay, I don't know why I came here then. Yeah. And it's because I'm manic. It's because I can articulate myself quite well. Mm-hmm. And it almost seems like they feel like I'm talking myself into this. Like I'm talking myself into mental illness or talking myself into, I have a psychological condition or, or I'm talking myself out of it. It's like, no, this is just me. Mm-hmm. I'm presenting you me. Mm-hmm. This is who I am. And however you're perceiving it is however you're perceiving it. And even if you were talking yourself into a mental illness, that in and of itself, to me, would be a mental illness. Yeah, <laughs> you know. Yeah. Now, what's going on right now? You know, because I work at I work in Hollywood. I see a lot of people that have a lot of the same conditions that that I had coming up, which mm-hmm. being very energetic, completing a lot of objectives by a, a very young age, but then at a certain point in their life, they slip. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it's a very slippery slope, right? I mean. You, you work that hard, that many hours, you have sleep apnea, uh, you're pumped up majority of the time, and then all of a sudden something goes wrong and you slip on the ice. That's what happened to me. Mm-hmm. Do you find that, that to be a, com- a common thing to happen in, in, in populace out here in Los Angeles? I would suspect it is. Yeah. Um, I, you know, from friends who work in the industry, he, I have a very close friend who um, pulls focus for different TV shows and films. And, you know, their schedules are crazy. They work seven, you know, they might have a call time at like 7 a.m. Mm-hmm. and they're off at 1 a.m. and right. then they're waiting for the email to find out what time they go back in the morning. Mm-hmm. And that's not very conducive to taking care of your mental health. You know, um, you, you can't have a routine. You're not having time to exercise do any kind of self-care so I feel like the way the demands of certain professions that are more common in LA would definitely put you at higher risk now that makes a lot of sense that I didn't even think about the 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 jobs that we have out here can sometimes make Mm -hmm. or break us sometimes bring us into a higher risk of mental illness because of it's not very consistent sometimes maybe you have a lot of worry maybe you're maybe you're scared yeah Hmm. And is there going to be work next week? I, I, you know. Yeah, yeah. There's also a lot of people in LA that do their own, um, they're their own, what do you call that? 
like a private contractor. They're um, oh, like they own like their own. They do yeah. consulting. Sure. Where they they're not like working for a company where they're protected and they have oh, yes. scheduled breaks and they have vacation time and they it's like as much as you work, you're going to get paid for. Right. Um, which also I don't think is very conducive to good mental health. Now, I meet a lot of actors on, on like Skid Row. Mm-hmm. I'll, I'll see a lot of actors on Skid Row. I'll see a lot of actors walking the street at night, getting couches at night, trying to find a place to stay. And it always makes me not wonder, but really see the light in Hollywood and how mental, mental health is more important now than it ever was. Than it ever was, especially now that I'm starting to see the tent cities growing. I, was, I grew up in Los Angeles, mm-hmm. so we didn't have the tent cities that n- now housing that we did when we were. Way more affordable. Yeah, housing was more affordable. Um, and it, you know, I think the rents just keep rising, and it's harder and harder to buy homes. So I think that's going to continue as long as we don't have, you know, the houses actually going into LA. Isn't it? Isn't there some? I was thinking there was some legislation about how like so much, so much of it, like 20% or whatever mm-hmm. had to be affordable. And I don't think that's actually happening. It's not happening right now. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. There's, they're still pushing these programs. You know, we have a lot of politicians who are talking about how they want to come down to California and fix quote unquote, fix our homeless problem. Why, why to me, that's a ridiculous concept come down to California and fix our homeless problem. Especially kind of, as an outsider. Exactly. Yeah. I mean, I don't, I don't see how they can see how, what is your opinion on that? I think it's really complicated and there has to be a lot of funding that goes into um, permanent housing and right. uh, affordable housing and mental health, you know, always more money for mental health in the community Sure. and, um, you know, help teaching people job skills and anything you would do um, to help, populations or communities that maybe deal with poverty. Right. Well, for me, one of the, one of the reasons why I got into homelessness issues was when I was going to college, there was a case in Brazil mm-hmm. where the shopkeepers had, they had so many homeless children that were sleeping wow. on the streets. They paid police officers oh, wow. to come by and kill the children. Oh dear. And they killed about 24 children before they caught on to it, that it was a big corruption scandal, and they stopped it. But they killed children. Uh, just last night in New York, uh, a 24-year-old homeless boy, homeless man, uh, killed four people while on the streets with, with a metal bat. Wow. And they caught him. You know, it's just, this is just news that just came out now. Is that violence the kind of violence we see in the streets today? Is, is that the kind of violence that we're trying to stop? I mean, I think... It reminds me of the study that was done while I was in undergrad at UC Santa Cruz. There was a, a graduate student who was um, in Santa Cruz. There's a very close-knit, there used to be, I don't know about today, but there was a very close-knit homeless community. And yes. You'd give people the option of being housed, but mm-hmm. they actually felt like they had this family there. Didn't you guys allow people to shower at one point inside certain homes? I don't I don't remember. Okay. Uh, I apologize. No, no. But the, this graduate student wanted to study um, homelessness, and so he set out to do two weeks of sleeping on the streets and sleeping rough. Um, and he made it, I think it, he made it like three days <laughs> before he started hearing voices and his family and friends intervened. Wow. And made him give up the study. Right. Um, 
to not be able to sleep, to not be safe at night, to have to worry about if someone's going to mug you or rob you. That's right. And so I think when you have people in those situations where they're under so much stress and they're at such high risk of being victimized. Right. Um, that, yeah, there, there are times when um, maybe they'll act out of fear or, or whatever. Right. I mean, I don't know that particular case. So I can't guess as to why this individual killed those four right. people with them. No, it just sounds it just sounds like somebody right. who just lost their Yeah. And, you know, I think being homeless in New York would be awful and um yeah. I would be very fearful myself. So Yeah. Yeah. And at that point jail would look better maybe. Do you do you find that that's why a lot of a lot of homeless people find themselves in jails because it's almost safer in jail around criminals than it would be on the streets around people who have psychological issues. You know, I don't, I haven't heard and any of my guys have, haven't really talked about that. They're Mm. all very happy to not be in jail. I think the jail in LA is um, pretty traumatic from what I've heard. Um, You know, they all have come, come to us with trauma from the jail um, and it takes them a couple months to adjust to not being in jail and feel safe um, before their mental health, you know, really improves. But um, I would, I don't know. I mean, I think in some instances in the hospital, for sure, we had people, when I worked in a, a psychiatric hospital, we had people who, yes, they would get hospitalized because they needed a bed and it was safer mm. in the hospital. They had food. Um, right. Uh, as far as women and, and how many families do you find that are homeless and like come into your center? So m- my specific job right now, um, it's it's referrals only to mm. the okay. jail system. And I currently only work with men. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't see the homeless families in the past. I've worked for um, com- community mental health and the, and what's called a full service partnership program, which is an FS, FSP. Right. Um, and we had, we, I worked in with transitional age youth, which is a special population between 16 and 25. Um, and we had a number of young people who did have, you know, we had a, a fair amount of young people with children experiencing homelessness. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I don't know what the percentage would be or, Anything like that. Well, I believe in what Mark Twain said, Samuel Clemens. Is, there's lies, there's damn lies, and then there's statistics. You know, I'm not a big, I'm not a yeah. big stat fan. You know what I mean? I'm not a big stat fan myself. But you know, that, that's really interesting. We're gonna go to one more commercial break, and we're gonna keep on talking to Brooke over here. Brooke, let's just listen to Angel right now.
No, I love that song. Thank you so much. All right, so we were talking about uh, on the commercial break here on places people can go to to get help, and that's really important because I've I've been to several unnamed places that have been really nice to help out people for free, mm-hmm. and uh, they're very caring and very supportive. Um, have you found it to be the same? Easier, easy to get into these places, easy for people to find uh, free medical care. Um, I think there's a lot of options. Okay, for sure. Yeah, I think um, you know it depends on the route you're going. If you're currently a danger to yourself or mm-hmm. other, you're feeling suicidal, and you've thought about how you might um, end your life, you've taken steps towards that. You probably want to go immediately to the ER. Mm, okay, and the and to a hospital. Now, if they take you to the ER, mm-hmm. they're they're going to call 5150 on you. They may or may not. They may or may not. So, if you're willing to go voluntarily, you can maintain a voluntary status while you're there. They they might decide that it's too risky and if you change your mind on the voluntary status, at that point they can slap the 5150 on you. Okay. So, you've gone in voluntarily, things are great, all of a sudden you want to discharge Fifty one fifty would can start. Okay. Now fifty one fifty would get me into a hospital and then a bed. Fifty one fifty would give you th- three days of uh, basically involuntary treatment. Okay. Um, you can voluntarily do that anyways. Right. Um, if if you don't have insurance, you know they can apply for emergency medical and get you transferred to a um, one of the county um, DMH hospitals. That's amazing. Um, there's also Exodus. And other behavioral health urgent cares. Mm-hmm. I think STARS Behavioral Health has one now in Long Beach, too. Um, and those are uh, urgent cares where you go and you can stay for up to 24 hours. You're seen and assessed by a psychiatrist. And if at that point you need hospitalization, they'll help get the bed and get you transferred. So it's easier now more than ever to get mental health care. I think there's a lot of options now. Yeah. Um, There's also, you know, just your community's um, uh, community mental health center. So um, DMH has, you know, they're like in Long Beach, Long Beach mental health. Right. um, And you, you can go and make an appointment and that's also covered by Medi-Cal. If Mm -hmm. you don't have Medi-Cal, they'll help you get Medi-Cal. Now you you mentioned you're an advocate and we talked about what advocacy means. What what happens if I go to a psychiatrist and that psychiatrist Mm -hmm. doesn't quite believe what I'm saying or understand where I'm coming from, uh, do I need to be my own advocate at that moment? Yeah, I think always, um, I think when you're dealing with with any health issue, you always need to be your own advocate, whether it's um, psychiatric illnesses or physical illnesses. And if the doctor isn't hearing you, um, I think it's important to, one, to try to work with the doctor and build a relationship. Um, but two, um, you know, if that doctor is not working for you, you can always change doctors you can talk to your social worker and right. have a social worker help you um, right i think there's definitely options but if you don't feel like you're being heard i think it's important to keep going back hmm. well closing out the show you know and thank you so much for being on today i, I really appreciate it i you know i everybody's always worried before they come on a show and and it always it always goes by really really fast and we i, I think we have a good time uh, this is more difficult of a subject than talking about maybe your childhood or, you know, you know, what did you like to eat when you were like 12 yeah. and what have you, which is usually the questions I ask. 
you want to ask Hollywood questions. I, I kind of go light and then I go a little deeper and what have you. This is just straight out deep right from the beginning. Yeah. But we're trying to help people. We're trying mm-hmm. to let people know where they can go to, how they can get help. When do they need help? There's also, um, what is it? Uh, Lifeline. Which what? is, um, it's 1-800, let me pull up the phone number. It's a, a suicide prevention hotline. Well, we have one that's 1-800-273-8255. Yep, that's it. There you go. That's it. <laughs> or or 1-800-273-TALK. Talk. Mm-hmm. Those are great lines. You know, I've, I've called suicide prevention lines myself mm-hmm. throughout my entire life uh, several times, and I, I've really enjoyed the people on the other end of the line, That's even great. if they didn't fully understand what I was going through, because mm-hmm. you're going to lie. I think you're going to lie a little bit. I mean, people are just scared. People are just scared. So, But I've had people be very sweet to me and, and quite honestly, just tell me the truth. And the truth was scary, by the way. Like I remember when I was young and I... I was very young, and I told uh, a suicide prevention line, I'm like, you know, just t- thinking about taking sleeping pills, just killing myself that way. I was 16 years old, baby. Mm-hmm. She goes, you know, you're not going to die, right? I go, what? She goes, you're going to wake up in the middle of the night, in whatever hotel you're in, mm-hmm. you're going to vomit yourself, yourself out, and then you probably you're going to die. So you're going you're gonna to go through a lot of pain yeah. before that happens. And, and literally, I thought to myself, that sounds horrible. Yeah. I'm going to get Jack in a box. <laughs> <laughs> that's exactly what I thought. I'm like, that sounds horrible. That sounds nothing like what I want to happen. What I want to happen. That doesn't sound like a painting at all. And nobody's gonna give a crap when they find me in that hotel bed. <laughs> so I, I've always found that kind of advocacy to be quite like heartwarming as well. Like just a gut punch. Feedback. Oh yeah. Yeah, the direct, honest. Like yeah. this is the real the reality of of your choice there. Yeah, the yeah. reality of your romanticism is. Yeah is really you're going to be shoveling crap behind an elephant. Yeah. <laughs> Do you find that happening? Because before I went into, you know, care or, or ask for help, mm-hmm. I was I was genuinely afraid. Mm-hmm. And I'm not afraid of anything. Genuinely afraid of the process. Of the process. Of the process. No. I'm, sure that's, I'm sure that's one of the things that keeps people from getting treatment. And also the stigma. Um I think people don't, you know, I, I used to work for um, WebMD as a stress, mental health and stress specialist, mm. and we did coaching. And, you know, you could not talk to CEOs of companies. You couldn't get them to go into the office to get therapy, but they'd be happy to go on their lunch break to their car where nobody knew what they were doing and have a online or, or phone therapy session that way. And That's so I, nice. I think there's definitely stigma attached to having to go into a mental health office right. or something like that. And then I think also people, you're right. People have bad experiences. You know, um, my ex-husband, the, I, at one point talked him into trying to get help. He went to the doctor, uh, and the doctor said, well, you know, don't prescribe those medications anymore. What do you want to do? And you're not suicidal or anything. And he started crying and I raised a big five. Right. To, um, you know, at the doctor's office. Incredible. Yeah, I explained to them, you know, I have a hard time asking for help. Getting him here took me six six months to a year. Yeah. 
And it was hard for him to ask for help. You know, all you needed to do was validate what he was experiencing and refer him to a psychiatrist if you didn't want to prescribe something. Sure. You didn't need to invalidate him and say you're not that bad. How demasculating, invalidating, yeah. it's horrible. Yeah. So I think there people do have bad experiences with asking for help at times. Um, and then they don't want to get help again. Yeah. I was, I was afraid not, not, not to live. I, I always loved life. For me, I never really wanted to kill myself, but sometimes I just didn't want to be alive. Yeah. You know, it's like I want to go on a spaceship and get off this planet yep. kind of mentality. A, a you know break what I mean? from life. So, yeah, yeah, I want to take a break, like, for three months. Yeah. You know, go, and some people go salmon fishing. Some people go to, like, oil tankers and work on oil tankers. Mm-hmm. Seriously. But what do you, what do you find is, is one of the reoccurring issues that, that is bothering you in your field right now? questioning. It doesn't really need to match what we're talking about, but is there something going on or you going? I honestly think the healthcare. I, I think um, a lot of people with mental illness die a lot younger. Their life expectancy is a lot less than people who um, who do not have a severe and persistent mental illness. And I think the frustration in getting them the treatment that they need and to be taken seriously and to actually have somebody examine them and um, take care of their health uh, is my frustration. Hmm. Hmm. Um, I think homelessness is too. Really? I think homelessness is a huge issue as well. Homelessness is a gigantic issue in Los Angeles. And, and before we wrap this up, I, I did want to talk a little bit about the homelessness issue right now in Los Angeles in a, in a different way, in a okay. different function. How many people out of state do you think are coming to Los Angeles with mental illness thinking that this is the place they need to be? It's interesting. Um, I have no idea. I couldn't guess, but <laughs> we do get a fair number of people who um, are in other states and they'll experience like uh, an increase in their psychosis or a manic episode and they up and move out here thinking they're going to become a musician or an actor or whatever. And then when they get here, they immediately, you know, they can't afford a place to live. They um, don't have resources here Mm. and they're homeless. Yeah. Yeah. I, I would guess that there's a lot, but I, you know, I have no numbers for that. Right. Of course not. I, and, and quite honestly, I wouldn't want numbers. Yeah. Because, they, they, yeah. They, you know, that's such a I mean, they're called forgotten people. Yeah. It's called a hidden world for a reason. Yeah. Because those numbers are a lot of times either fabricated or are a guess because you can't do a census of people who are actively trying to avoid you. Well, they do do a homeless count every year, mm-hmm. um, but they don't take data on, you know, where the person came from. I mean, they kind of just go, we, you know, when, when they do that, you, they have volunteers go out and um, kind of count everybody and then offer them resources. But, you know, with, with the artists that are come down from other states, what is, what is the most common thing you see in, in people? Is it, is it mania? Probably. Um, I, I'm not really sure. I mean, yeah. um, cause I see a lot of people that come out here with that Hollywood energy and sometimes they actually, confuse that with, with manic, manic abilities. I'm not really sure. Yeah. Um, cause we get like where I'm at right now, I think several of them had psychosis and had delusions of like, I have family there or I have, um, you know, my music career is going to take off once mm. I get there. So 
uh, that's that's hard to know. Making the distinction between a delusion is is a big thing. And you know, it could also be that there's a lot of people who maybe don't have a severe mental illness that come out um, for similar reasons, but they're kind of barely making it or making it a little. You know, at least they're able to be housed, and they, right. I don't ever come in contact with them. Right. They have insurance, and so they, you know, seek mental health services other ways. Brooke. You know, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. <laughs> she, she's smiling. <laughs> Are you glad it's over? <laughs> we very much appreciate you. No, it was you. fun being here. Thank yeah, you. we very much appreciate you being on the show today. And uh, we look forward to hearing from you in the future. We, we definitely want to have you back on the show again. That'd be fun. That'd be fun. Everybody call 1-800-273-8255 for suicide prevention or 1-800-273-TALK. If you need help, if you need somebody to talk to, that was a great conversation with Brooke, wasn't it? Well, we're going to be going off air in a couple of seconds. It's a great, great little show there. Our first show of many to come. Hmm. Brooke took a lot of time from her life to talk to us, share her experience, share her love of life. Uh, those are hard things to talk about. Talking about her family. Uh, those are very intimate things. We thank her for that because not a lot of people want to share those exact things in our lives. And it's painful to bring those things up again. How's everybody doing out there? Are you doing well? If you need any help, if you need somebody to talk to, don't forget the phone number for National Suicide Prevention Hotline is 1-800-273-8255. Or 1-800-273-8255 or talk. All right, everybody. Thank you so much for joining me today. This is a fun episode. This is something I was looking forward to. We're going to have more episodes like this in the future. The show is called Forgotten People. I'm your host, Steve Pisa. Now is our guest, Brooke Martin. Thank you very much. Have a great weekend.